Pie in the Sky Media. This series contains adult language and descriptions of graphic violence throughout. Listener discretion is advised. I'm Carolyn Osorio, and this is my new podcast, The Murder Chronicles. You're listening to episode 35, Deliberate Cruelty. The human brain isn't fully developed and mature until the mid to late 20s. The prefrontal cortex, that part of the brain behind the forehead, is one of the last portions to mature, which is ironic, because when it comes to, say, survival of the fittest, the prefrontal cortex is responsible for decision-making skills like planning, prioritizing, the whole making good decisions part. As we get started, I thought it might be important to insert that here as we try to puzzle out the motivations of the people, mostly young people, in this story. Because that nagging question, when it comes to the horror and violence of a murder, you always come back to the why. Why did this happen? How do we make sense of the circumstances leading up to murder? But when it comes to this case, the motive of the one adult old enough to have a fully formed brain in this story is as old as time. And yet, the motives of some of the people involved in this story, either as perpetrators or witnesses, well, let's just say we'll never know. There's no rhyme or reason, because over 20 years have passed, and we still don't have an answer to the fundamental question, why? Teresa Starling met Jerry Rose in 1989, when they were both living in Hawaii. Terry's daughter was just six years old. Her name was Sarah. And the new relationship between Teresa, or Terry as she was called, and Jerry was a big deal for both mother and daughter. At the time, they'd been through a lot. Teresa had recently divorced Sarah's father, and that relationship had been volatile, toxic, allegations of domestic violence. Terry was diagnosed with PTSD because of the abusive relationship that she'd endured at the hands of her ex-husband. And of course, little Sarah had a front row seat a witness to the physical, emotional, and mental abuse that her mother had endured for years. But now, Terry and Sarah had a new lease on life because Jerry was amazing. He was generous and sweet, and he wanted to provide for Terry and Sarah. He wanted them to have a good life. It was a no-brainer when Jerry asked Terry to marry him in 1991, and she said yes. Jerry loved Terry, who he would describe as sweet and kind and generous. But a couple years into the marriage, some cracks started to form, especially after Jerry got a promotion, which meant the family would need to move to Seattle in 1993. Terry and Sarah were adamant that they didn't want to leave Hawaii, but Jerry was the main breadwinner. Terry didn't work outside of the home. So at the end of the day, Sarah and Terry went along grudgingly leaving sunny Hawaii for the not-quite-so-sunny Seattle. Actually, Bellevue, which is a pricey suburb of the Emerald City. Terry was miserable. She became obsessed with everything wrong in her life. She wasn't happy. And as the years rolled on, she couldn't stop herself from sharing her feelings with Sarah, who was no longer a little girl, but a teenager with her own ideas. By 1998, a role reversal had taken place between mother and daughter. Sarah had become her mother's best friend and confidant. 
And Terry, for the most part, let Sarah do whatever she wanted, whenever she wanted. The thing is, Sarah had always been protective of her mother, even more so because she'd witnessed the abuse that her mother had went through at the hands of her father for years. By the time Sarah was 15, Terry had long ago relinquished control of the wheel to her daughter. At the very time when Sarah needed boundaries and a strong support system at home the most. Sarah was a talented artist, but she'd recently transferred from a private school to a public school, and she was having problems. She actually dropped out with plans to enroll in a homeschooling program, but that hadn't materialized yet, which meant Sarah had a lot of free time on her hands. Jerry was not happy with Sarah's decision to drop out, and he was worried about her friend group. They were much older. Remember, she was 15, and the people that she was hanging out with were closer to 19, 20, 21, and older. And she was staying out all hours of the night, partying, drinking, smoking cigarettes. These new friends were having a negative impact on Sarah. And without the business of going to school every day as an anchor, Sarah was becoming unmoored. And as Sarah was being influenced by her new friend group, so was Terry. Terry and Jerry were members of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, a place Terry also worked part-time under the tutelage of a new pastor, who she was increasingly becoming more and more under his control, especially after this new pastor had diagnosed Terry with multiple personality disorder. In fact, many in the congregation had been diagnosed with it too. The group was actually called the Multiple Personality Disorder Group at church. The new pastor referred Terry to a counselor who confirmed the diagnosis. And at the same time, this pastor had a meeting with Jerry, who told him that his wife would never be the same because of her multiple personality disorder. Jerry was suspicious of the diagnosis. He knew that multiple personality disorder or disassociate disorder is extremely rare. And now Terry was an active member in a group of about 15 to 20 people who had also been diagnosed with MPD. But Jerry wanted to make his marriage work. He was committed to Terry and Sarah. So both Jerry and Terry were counseled separately by the pastor. And he didn't know this, but it was like the pastor was purposely trying to put a wedge between the married couple. Things that each had said in confidence, he would tell the other. And it was around this time that the pastor counseled Terry to stop having a sexual relationship with her husband, which she did. This lack of intimacy further impacted Terry and Jerry's marriage. Between him working all the time for their family and his busy job, they barely spoke to one another. And when they did, it always ended in a verbal fight. Terry became obsessed with her church and her hatred of Jerry. He was to blame for everything going wrong in their lives. She wanted to go back to Hawaii, and she shared all these details with her young, impressionable, headstrong, and independent daughter, Sarah. Through the walls of their suburban home, Sarah heard these epic verbal battles between Jerry and her mother. Later, Sarah soothed her mom, and Terry would give in to her daughter's every whim, letting her stay out late at night, giving her money to buy alcohol, letting her drive her new car, a 1998 Dodge Stratus, even though Sarah only had her learner's permit. And since Sarah wasn't in school, she had plenty of time to hang out and party at a network of friends' homes whose parents either condoned the partying or they were old enough to live on their own. Meantime, Sarah's family home also became a hangout spot for her friends, who all shared a similar mindset at that time, to live for the day, party, and have fun. Drugs and alcohol were always on the menu. 
which didn't seem to bother Terry, who insisted all of Sarah's friends refer to her as mom. It was around this time that Sarah met Jason McDaniels for the first time in late 1998. Jason was five years older than Sarah. At 20, Jason was just kind of drifting through life. He wasn't enrolled in school, he didn't have a job or a driver's license, and he didn't really seem to care that he didn't have a lot of prospects. He got by by couch surfing, leaning into the generosity of friends and their families, and even grifting. Jason was attuned at finding easy marks, like Sarah Starling. 15-year-old Sarah saw stars when she first laid eyes on the charismatic Jason. Of course her heart fluttered when he looked over and they exchanged a glance. And it wasn't long before they were talking. He was working to get to know her. And this new attention was a boon for Sarah, especially with all the crap going on at home. Gaining the attention of a 20-year-old, that was powerful. Sure, Sarah had crushes before, but Jason was different. He was older, she was drawn to him, and he knew it. He knew just what to say to hook Sarah onto his line. And it wasn't long before Sarah was bringing Jason home, introducing him to Terry who of course insisted that he call her mom. Sarah and Jason became romantically involved quickly, and he started staying over. But it wasn't long before Jason brought his lone possession, his signature duffel bag that contained all that he owned. And when he brought this into the family home, he had no plans of couch surfing. Jerry wasn't happy to have a 20-year-old sleeping in the bedroom of his 15-year-old stepdaughter. But at this point, he'd become an interloper in his own home. The relationship between his wife and stepdaughter had spiraled to the point where he didn't even put up much of a fight. He was working 12 to 15 hours a day. Terry and Jerry rarely spoke to each other. And when they did, those conversations escalated into screaming matches. One can imagine Jerry flipped his lid when he found out that Terry had allowed Jason to drive her Dodge Stratus, even though he didn't have a driver's license. Jason had also worked his way into even driving Jerry's brand new Dodge Durango, which he absolutely loved driving. Terry had made it crystal clear that she wasn't interested in Jerry or anything that he had to say, nor did she want to have a sexual relationship with him. She was putting all of her energy into her work at the church and, of course, the pastor. Whenever Terry was home, the house was filled with Sarah and now Jason's friends, too. Terry took to Jason immediately, almost like a mother-son type relationship. And as with Sarah, she began talking trash about Jerry to Jason. In a way, it would become a toxic triangle, which Jason exploited. Terry started giving him money and clothes. He continued to drive her car and sleep with her daughter, who believed what she had with Jason was true love. We'll be back after a quick break. Jason, on the other hand, was a little less prosaic. In fact, when he was out of earshot of Sarah, he was downright salty. He would brag to his friends that Sarah meant nothing to him, that she was just easy sex and a roof over his head. And of course, there was Terry. A team of psychiatrists would probably have something to say about this blossoming relationship. For the first time, Jason was being showered with attention and money. And Terry, or Mom, as she insisted that he call her, was something he'd never really experienced growing up in a broken home without a lot of opportunity. Sure, he was jaded. And even though Sarah's family was broken too, for the first time in Jason's life, he was getting everything that he asked for. 
But he was so giddy in his new good fortune that he was blind to the fact that another hook was being baited and thrown into the water. And it wasn't long before Jason, without even realizing it, was hooked on Terry's line. Because Terry and Sarah wanted him to help them murder Jerry. In early January of 1999, a series of discussions took place between Sarah and Terry, who solicited Jason to murder Jerry Rose for a package deal, $10,000 from Jerry's life insurance. Also part of the package was Jerry's sleek Dodge Durango that they knew Jason absolutely adored, and then airplane tickets to Hawaii, where after the deed was done, he would meet up with Sarah and Terry. And here's where it gets tricky. You know the saying, loose lips sink ships. And if you're thinking that this plan would be contained in the tight group of conspirators, the mastermind Terry, Sarah, and Jason, you'd be wrong. In the weeks following the initial conversation, Jason and Sarah would openly discuss with their friend groups at parties their plans to murder Sarah's stepfather, Jerry. And yet, in all of these conversations, none of these young people ever contacted the police. And the actual plot to kill Jerry Rose, the nuts and bolts of how it would go down, was discussed at least five or six times. At one point, Terry advised Jason to be mindful that any blood spilled during the murder at home should be done on the wood floor so it would be easier to clean up later. There were other issues to consider and discuss. But eventually, a date was set. February 16, 1999 would be Jerry Rose's last day on Earth. Jerry had a business dinner slated for that evening, and so he'd be home a little bit later than usual. So that night, Jason showed up at the family home with a 17-year-old friend named Justin. Apparently, on the fly that day, Jason was like, hey, I'm going to murder my girlfriend's stepdad tonight. Do you want to help me kill him? And Justin was like, sure. They knew that Jerry was a creature of habit and always came through the garage and into the house. They figured he'd be easily dispatched through an ambush and then strangulation. After the conversation about the blood and cleanup, they settled on a piece of rope in the garage and Jason made a noose with it. A blitz attack by Jason and Justin on the unsuspecting Jerry would ensure no blood. After they murdered Jerry, they planned to load his body into his own Dodge Durango and then drive an hour away to a remote area in Granite Falls. At some point, Jason would call Sarah and Terry, who, the plan dictated, would be conveniently shopping at a nearby mall. And that's when he would let them know that Jerry was dead. Then, Sarah and Terry would return home from shopping and act like Jerry had actually never come home from the business dinner when they called the police and reported him missing. But from the start, the plan didn't go according to plan. There was Jamie, Sarah's best friend, who she'd invited over for a sleepover that night. But when Jamie was told about the plot to murder Jerry, she was like, I don't want to be any part of this. But she did agree to go to the mall with Sarah and Terry. Before they left, Jason pulled Jamie into a spare bedroom in the Rose's family home. He got up real close and tight, saying, friends don't squeal on friends. And if you tell anybody about this, I will kill you. Jason and Justin got into their positions. Jason was hiding in a closet near the garage door entrance, and Justin hid upstairs in Sarah's bedroom, waiting to hear from Jason that Jerry was home. When Jerry didn't come home right away, Justin and Jason tried to break into his gun safe. Prying it open didn't work. Neither did bashing in the face of the combination lock. It just wouldn't open. But by the time they were done, the outside was toast. But they weren't too worried about that because Jerry was going to be dead soon. 
So they went back to their hiding positions and waited. They weren't expecting Jerry to go off script. He didn't come through the garage at all. What they didn't know was that Jerry was suffering a bout of severe irritable bowel syndrome. He barely made it rushing in through the front door down the hall as he raced for the bathroom. Between Jerry's delay in getting home and the fact that he came in through the wrong door, Justin got cold feet. As the 17-year-old waited upstairs, the gravity of what he was about to do began to sink in. He had no reason to help murder Jerry Rose, and he told Jason that he was out. Apparently, Jason lost his nerve too, because he called Terry and broke the news that her husband was still alive. She wasn't happy about it. In the weeks following the failed murder plot, Jason continued to tell people that he was going to murder Jerry Rose. He bragged to his friends that he was going to get $10,000 and that Dodge Durango and a trip to Hawaii. And Sarah was right there with him. She wanted to murder her stepfather too, but neither took action. Jason continued to live at the Rose's home, accept the gifts and money bestowed upon him from Terry, eat the food from the family's table, a lifestyle all paid for by the generosity of Jerry, the man that he had plotted to kill and still planned to murder. A couple of weeks after the attempt on Jerry's life, Sarah was confronted with a hard truth that even puppy love couldn't cloud forever. Jason's true nature, he was using her. It all became clear to her when she saw that Jason had stolen $40 that she'd left on her dresser. And this wasn't the first time that he'd stolen money from their family. Just a couple of weeks before, remember on the night they were going to kill Jerry, when Justin and Jason had unsuccessfully broken into Jerry's gun safe? Of course, Jerry had found out about the safe and he called the police and reported the crime. He believed that one of Sarah's friends was responsible, but he didn't name who it could be. And as police were investigating, the pastor from Terry's church swooped in and tried to save the day. He gave Jason an envelope with $400. It was a loan, and he was supposed to present this $400 to Jerry with an apology and beg him not to pursue legal action. The $400 would cover the damage to the safe. Instead of giving money to Jerry with the apology, Jason blew the cash on cigarettes, drugs, and food. Disappointed, Sarah had still forgiven Jason. But that morning when she saw that the $40 was gone, something broke open. And she yelled at Jason saying, you're a taker who never gives. Jason didn't take kindly to Sarah talking to him like that. And he didn't engage. He just packed up his duffel bag and took off. Immediately, Jason blew off the relationship and resumed his couch surfing within their circle of friends drifting from one friend to another. But deep down, he was resentful. He'd had it good at the roses, and Sarah had ruined it. The rejection stung. In a one-on-one -on -one with a friend, he would share that he couldn't understand why Sarah had gotten so mad about the 40 bucks, but forgave him for the $400. I mean, during their short relationship, Jason had milked a couple of thousand dollars at different times from Terry. $100 here and there had added up. And in the days following their breakup, he'd heard through the grapevine that Sarah had been talking trash about him, saying that he was a user, which didn't sit well with Jason, who had been described as the type of personality with a hair trigger. One minute he was happy-go-lucky, the next second, a raging maniac. He didn't like it when people talked about him. He was known for tracking those people down and confronting them. Now, because of Sarah, he was back to couch surfing, eking out a much less cushy existence. His anger and bitterness calcified any feelings that he had for Sarah. He wanted revenge. He would tell friends that he hated Sarah Starling. At first, he wanted her to get beaten up. But as the days wore on, he would say that he wanted to kill her. Meantime, Sarah's resolve against Jason was softening. 
She was having second thoughts. Maybe he wasn't such a selfish boyfriend after all. She wanted to get back together with him, but first she'd have to find him, which wasn't too hard. A few phone calls later and she'd tracked him down. He was staying at Anne Marie's, a mutual friend to them both. Her apartment was a staple for this roving, partying friend group. She lived in Kirkland, a city roughly 15 minutes from Sarah's house. Once Sarah got Jason on the phone, she explained that she desperately needed to speak to him in person to clear the air. And he said sure, inviting her to Anne Marie's later that night. He promised that they would go talk together alone. Sarah would speak to a good friend that day, anticipating the upcoming reunion with Jason. But the friend advised Sarah not to go. She said it wasn't a good idea, but Sarah wasn't going to listen. There was nothing that would stand in the way of her reuniting with Jason. It was around 7.30 p.m., March 9, 1999, when Sarah dropped off her mom, Terry, at the mall by their house. Sarah would pick up her mom later at 9.30, after she spoke with Jason. And just 15 minutes later, she was knocking on Anne-Marie's door. It was a Tuesday night, but the apartment was humming with friends. Anne-Marie, Jason, and his friend TJ, and then several more young women who Sarah knew and said hello to. When she saw Jason for the first time, it felt good. She hadn't seen him in nearly two weeks. And when he told her that they would need to give TJ a ride before they went somewhere to talk, she was like, no problem. Jason was adept at hiding his hatred for Sarah, who had no idea that he blamed her for everything that was going wrong in his life. And it wasn't just Sarah, it was her entire family. Who did they think they were to pull the rug out from under him? His fantasies of murder now included the entire Rose family. He'd bragged to a mutual friend that he knew their habits, how to get in and out of their home. He knew that every night before bed, Sarah went out the sliding glass door in the back of her house and smoked a cigarette. How easy it would be to sneak up on Sarah and kill her. To kill the entire family. We'll be back after a quick break. Just a few minutes after Sarah arrived, they were headed out the door, piling into Sarah's mom's car with Sarah in the driver's seat, Jason riding shotgun, and TJ in the back seat behind Sarah. Now, TJ was about 6'3", 6'4", and over 200 pounds and very muscular. He was described by one friend as someone you didn't want to mess with, and he was very quiet, the opposite of Jason, who did most of the talking. But one thing you should know about TJ is he had a signature move he would perform at parties. He called it his sleeper. A partygoer would describe it later, saying, quote, he calls it a sleeper. He doesn't think he's choking anybody. He and his brother are pretty much famous for it around here. Everybody knows that they can do this, and they teach their closest buddies how to do it. It's something that you can use when getting into a fight in order to have that person pass out. You can cause physical harm towards them so they can't hurt you when they come out of it. And that's what they use it for. The party goer would add, it's just all in fun. It was something that he likes to do to people in the weirdest moments too. And he would do it to them and they would be on the ground, you know, like sleeping, literally snoring, you know, because he knew how to do it so well and just to get a reaction from people. What happened to Sarah during the next couple of hours will probably never really be known, but it started with TJ's signature sleeper move. Remember, he was sitting behind Sarah, who was driving and had stopped. Where is unclear? But it was long enough for TJ 
to stealthily maneuver his hulking frame in the back seat and without warning, wrap his arm around Sarah's neck and squeeze. As Jason watches, Sarah is being strangled, fighting for her life in the front seat, her eyes bulging as her last breath somehow escapes as she begs TJ to stop, but he only tightens his sleeper grip until Sarah's body goes limp. She's still alive when TJ drags her body into the back seat. Jason then jumps out and gets behind the wheel and starts driving toward an undeveloped wooded area just a few miles from Anne Marie's. It's dark outside as they pull up to a sign that says Kingsgate Park. There's a small gravel path into the park and it's on this that they drag 15-year-old Sarah along the muddy and pebbled walkway. After a pace, in total seclusion, they pull Sarah a few feet off the path and drop her face down onto a rock. And here, Jason and TJ take turns stomping her body and her head. The force of their blows will break her jaw, crush her teeth. She's passed out, but still alive. When Jason pulls out a kitchen knife, one that he stole from a matching set at Anne Marie's apartment. He took it just before they left. He lifts Sarah's head by the hair and administers the coup de grace as he plunges the knife into the left side of Sarah's neck deep enough to sever both her carotid artery and her internal jugular vein. The knife nicks Sarah's spine. With the bloody knife in Jason's hand dripping, they walk back to the car. TJ gets behind the wheel, and they drive a couple miles away to a fast food restaurant where Jason washes the blood from his hands and attempts to wash away Sarah's blood on his jeans, but it's set. After leaving the restaurant, they head toward the mall. Jason will throw the bloody knife out the window as they speed down the freeway. They know that Sarah's mom, Terry, is expecting her daughter to pick her up at 9.30. When they pull up to Terry, she gets into the car and immediately asks, where's Sarah? The cold-blooded killers explain that Sarah decided to talk with another friend and asked them to pick her up as scheduled. Jason offers to call Anne-Marie. Remember, that's the place that Sarah told her mom she was headed before she dropped her off earlier that night. Terry would grab the phone from Jason and says to Anne-Marie, where's my daughter? Anne-Marie responds with, I have no idea. Jason takes the phone back and with Anne-Marie still on the line begins a bizarre performance, saying out loud while looking at Terry, he's pretending to voice back a conversation with Anne-Marie that essentially he's having with himself for Terry's benefit, saying, oh, Sarah went with Jocelyn? Anne-Marie on the other end of the line begins to worry because she knows about Jason's bitterness towards Sarah. And she also knows that Sarah didn't leave with Jocelyn, Jason's jealous ex-girlfriend. Anne-Marie knows that the last people to leave with Sarah was TJ and Jason. After two hours of driving around with Terry, searching for Sarah, making phone calls, eventually Terry heads back to the family home with Jason and TJ. Of course, Sarah isn't there to greet her mother when they arrive after midnight. But when they come home, Jerry is roused out of his sleep. Jerry gets up. He wants to know what the commotion's all about. And when he sees Terry with Jason and TJ, he's like, where's Sarah? And also, what are these guys doing here? he believes that they're the ones who broke into the safe. Terry lies and says that Sarah was spending the night at a friend's house. She then tells Jerry that she's gonna drop off Jason and TJ at a friend's house. When Terry drops Jason and TJ at this friend's house, they encounter a young man named Joe, who was a friend of TJ's. Now Joe had never met Jason before, and he was about to leave 
when TJ asked Joe if he'd give them a ride to another friend's house, a trailer up in Bothell, about 15 minutes away, saying they could hang out for a bit. Joe was up for it, and the three of them took off, a decision that Joe would deeply regret, because not long after, TJ would blurt out that he had just killed somebody and offered to take Joe to where the body was to show him at Kingsgate Park. Obviously stunned, Joe was like, why did you do this? And then Jason and TJ together explained how they had an agreement to murder Sarah's stepfather for the 10,000, the Durango, and the tickets to Hawaii, but they killed Sarah, his stepdaughter, instead. Joe was skeptical as he listened to these two young men. I mean, the whole story just seemed over the top and really didn't make any sense. If you had a hit on the dad who you didn't kill, then why would you kill the daughter who had no life insurance? By the time Joe dropped TJ and Jason off at the trailer, he noted that Jason's demeanor had gone from amped up to frantic because he was trying to get a hold of Anne-Marie. Joe would go inside the trailer with both Jason and TJ, and they did hang out for a bit until the three of them piled back into Joe's car once again, and he was going to take TJ to his grandma's house in Kirkland and drive Jason to Anne-Marie's. But as they continued to drive, Joe had had enough with Jason and basically kicked them both out of the car saying, get out. And that was the last time he saw them. Jason eventually made his way back to the trailer. It was around 2 a.m. when Anne-Marie actually called him back and he begged her to come get him. He was like, I need to speak with you. Anne-Marie drove out to the trailer and despite the early morning hour, there were still people up partying. Jason grabbed her arm and ushered her into an unoccupied bedroom where he confessed that he and TJ had murdered Sarah Starling. When Anne-Marie asked him why, the only thing he could come up with was that he wanted to get the family's money and cars, but none of it really made any sense. Why would TJ participate in this murder? He told Anne-Marie that he needed to go back to her place and get his duffel bag because he was leaving town. Dutifully, Anne-Marie drove Jason to her place and then he got a ride with someone else to his uncle's house who lived nearby at around 4 a.m. It was now Wednesday, March 10th. Later that day, at around four in the afternoon, Jason would board a Greyhound bus headed for Spokane, which is a little over four hours away. He had a brother who lived there. Less than two hours later, at around 5.30 that night, two people were strolling through Kingsgate Park. About five feet off the footpath, amidst bushes and thick ivy, they saw the body of a girl lying face down. Immediately, they called 911. It wasn't long before a local news chopper was hovering above the small residential park, and big lights illuminated the darkness, spotlighting the crime scene. News vans clustered around the park, jockeying for space with emergency vehicles. Word had spread that the body of a young woman had been found at the park. That and Sarah's friend groups were talking too. They knew that Sarah had gone missing and that Jason had left town. People started showing up at the park, including TJ with a group of friends, who noticed that he was acting anxious, especially as they got closer and closer to the park. He said, Oh crap, they found her. By then, police had already cordoned off the scene. They'd followed the blood trail with the drops that had dripped off the knife. And when the Emmy turned over Sarah's body, they noted the dirt and mud on the girl's clothes, which suggested that she'd been dragged to the site where she'd been found and then beaten and stabbed to death. Jerry and Terry had already arrived at the scene. They'd been told by Sarah's friends that they thought that her body had been found at the park. But nothing had been confirmed yet because Sarah didn't have any ID on her. Jerry and Terry explained to deputies that Sarah had been missing since Tuesday, March 9th at around 9 p.m., and it wasn't long before Jason's name was being passed to investigators at the scene as the killer. TJ was there, too, acting like he had information. 
He was already pointing the finger at Jason, who was in the wind. Detectives would bring TJ into a mobile RV at the scene for questioning when they found out that he and Jason were the last people to see Sarah Starling. And as TJ came out of the RV, he would hug Terry and Jerry at the scene, saying, I'm sorry that Jason done this. But investigators weren't finished with TJ. He would be interviewed several times that night. And the problem was that his story kept changing. He would say that he dropped off Jason at the park so he could look for Sarah, and that he called TJ at around 5 a.m., allegedly saying, I killed her. I killed her. But at the same time, detectives were also interviewing three young women who came forward with a markedly different story, that both TJ and Jason had admitted that they had murdered Sarah. TJ would be arrested for the murder of Sarah Starling. And four days later, on March 13, 1999, detectives were able to track down Jason in Spokane. He was arrested in a restaurant parking lot where he was trying to meet a friend to give him money. After the arrest, investigators learned that Jason had his belongings at an apartment, and he gave police consent to search his duffel bag, where they collected the bloody jeans that Jason had been wearing the night that he murdered Sarah. But as investigators spoke to witnesses, it appeared that there was a lot more to the story than the brutal murder of a teenage girl, that there'd been an alleged plot to kill Sarah's stepfather, Jerry Rose. Sarah's mother, Terry Rose, would be arrested about a week later for the conspiracy to commit murder of her husband, Jerry Rose. And after she'd been arrested, Jerry would find out for the first time that not only was his stepdaughter, Sarah, murdered by Jason and TJ, but that his stepdaughter, Sarah, and his wife, Terry, had colluded with Jason to murder him. It was during this time that detectives handed Jerry a letter that Sarah had written to Jason in the days before her murder. Sarah's letter would be found at the family's home. Quote, Jason. So it's finally come down to a letter. First, the whole laundry thing was a pathetic excuse. Okay, now that I said that, I can continue. I really have nothing to say. I wish we could still move to Hawaii, but shit happens and we move on and hopefully learn. I'm glad I finally realized I need to change. And I hope you see that for yourself soon. No long mushy goodbyes or blame. I guess we both need to figure out what we want. I don't know what to say. I wish you would have been honest with me about everything. I don't think I asked much except to be honest with me, but I guess that was too much. I will miss you, but this needs to happen. Don't worry about the money. You know me. I always take care of that part. But the Jerry thing. Well, no lecture about that. Don't worry. I won't rat. I told you I wouldn't. And I try to do what I say I will. And no sweat about mom going to the POs about age. I've got it covered like I always do. Well, know that that business has been taken care of. I want to leave on good terms. Good luck with whatever it is you're going to do. Oh, and good luck with Jerry and Pastor and Mom. It was fun while it lasted. See you around. Love always, Sarah. P.S. I will always love you, Sarah. Jason McDaniels and T.J. Mullen Coston were convicted of the first-degree murder of Sarah Starling. A jury also found Jason guilty of conspiring to murder Jerry Rose. He would receive 42 years in prison. T.J. was sentenced to 31 years. Terry Rose pleaded guilty to the conspiracy charge and waived her right to trial. At her sentencing, a judge agreed with prosecutors that she had suffered from post-traumatic stress disorder from beatings she received from her previous husband, Sarah's father. Ultimately, she was sentenced to five years in prison. The Murder Chronicles is a pie-in-the-sky production recorded live in the beautiful Pacific Northwest. 
We are produced by Brandon Morgan and myself. Music by Soundstripe. For Pie in the Sky Media, I'm Carolyn Osorio, your writer and host. Thanks for listening. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.